Welcome to autumn. It's the first day of the fall, right? The first day of autumn. Somebody said that. I just took it on their word. Um, but welcome to the autumn season. We are in a sermon series called The Sermon on the Mount, where we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're, it's autumn on the Mount. And last week, uh, we kind of worked through a preface of sorts. We looked at the first two verses of chapter 5, and we spent all night on them because we learned something important in these two verses of chapter 5. We learned the importance of the difference between the disciples and the crowd. The questions we ask are, are, are who is Jesus to you? Is he just a, a good teacher, a great moral teacher, or is he Savior? And then who are you to Jesus? Are you a disciple and a follower, or are you just a face in the crowd. And one of the lessons we looked at last week is that as Jesus stepped back, it says he withdrew from the crowd, he went up the mountain, and as he began to preach, the only people that heard it were the ones around him, and it says the disciples came to him. So this is a teaching moment from Jesus to his disciples, and the lesson here is if you want to grow up, show up. Show up. Whether it's not just weekend services, but we're talking about life groups, women's brunches, men's retreats, and not even just those things. Showing up daily for, for time to spend with God in the morning or whenever you do it, in the Word and through prayer and fasting. If you want to grow up, show up. But that's what we looked at last week. You can podcast it. But we also commented and looked at the setting for the Sermon on the Mount, the political setting. Because as we talked about, the Jews were suffering violence and persecution under the tyranny and the thumb of Roman rule and Roman occupation. And their eyes were peeled their ears were itching to hear about this kingdom of God and this Messiah that gets prophesied in the Old Testament and promised again and again and again. So as we talked about last week, as Jesus is beginning the Sermon on the Mount, he's coming right out of Matthew chapter 4, where it says that the first words of his ministry were, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So they would have heard that, and they would have thought, okay, the kingdom of heaven, it's coming. It's coming, and it's near. So no doubt, some of this crowd, even some of his close followers, were following him with their eye on this, this coming reign. If he was the Messiah and the kingdom of God is coming, a lot of them thought, well, he's going to topple the Roman government. There's going to be political power. There's going to be military might. So they're thinking, hey, if there's a bandwagon to get on right now, it's this one. If there's an honorage you want to join, it's this one. And it's not wild to think that many of his close followers did it because they thought eventually they might be a big deal. You see James and John, their, their mother, their helicopter mom, come up to Jesus and like, hey, when you get your throne and you set up your kingdom, can my sons sit on your left and your right? right this is a question she, she asked Jesus. Look, if you ever like, I feel like I don't get it yet, just know the disciples and the people that were following Jesus, they didn't get it right away either, so give yourself some grace. But you've got his followers and some of his disciples acting like the world. Let me get to the top of the ladder. Let me position myself for power and prestige when this kingdom finally gets established. And how often do we as his followers still do the same today? Because his disciples, his followers, they were, again, were clamoring to get the best position, the top of the ladder. And then what does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount from the very beginning? He takes this ladder that everybody's climbing to get to the top of, and he flips it upside down. Many theologians call this the introduction of his upside-down kingdom. What am I talking about? Well, well let's read. We're going to uh, jump into the red letters of, of Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus speaking as he begins the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 3, he said, Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be showed mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I want to get digging in this text, but can we just pause and consider from the jump? I love that this is Jesus's kingdom manifesto. This is him pointing to the kingdom that he's ushering in. And the very first word that's out of his mouth is blessed. It's not something about commands that we have to follow in order to be blessed. He immediately gets rid of that trap we so often think of mentally where I have to check off this command and that command and obey this and that to somehow earn the grace of God. No, the grace of God is always first and foremost, and that's our greatest blessing. Right? There's all different blessings we'll experience in life. None of them is greater than the grace that's available through Jesus Christ in the cross. That's present in the good news, and that's present in Jesus. But this word blessed can loosely be translated happy. Uh, some translations use that word. And it's notable because in our world and in our culture, there's few things we chase as much as happiness. The biggest rule, one of the biggest rules we live by in our society is we'll do what, do what makes you happy, right? At least chase happiness. Yet as much as we chase it, it proves elusive. I was clicking through the internet yesterday, and as I'm studying for this sermon, uh, I came across uh, an article, and the headline was, Are Humans Built to Be Happy? So I clicked on it, because I'm studying for this, and, and, the, and there was a paragraph in the sentence that was offset from the paragraph. They had a button so you could tweet it, and, and the main point was, if we are so obsessed with happiness, why are we so unhappy? And it pointed to increasing statistics about depression and alike in our culture, where we're well off, right? We have the means to pursue happiness, and yet it proves elusive. We're thinking, man, what's the cheat code? What's the secret sauce? How do I find happiness? Don't believe me. At Yale, their most popular class ever, hands down, was a class on happiness. Within three days, 600 students had signed up for it. A quarter of the campus ended up taking this psychology class on the art of happiness because we want the answers. How, how do we find happiness? We're chasing it, but it seems so elusive. And again, the Sermon on the Mount, it starts with the word blessed that can be translated happy. But the recipe for the blessings are probably one that we wouldn't cook up ourselves. You know the word blessed? If you're on social media, you know a few years ago it had a long run as like the most popular hashtag on Twitter and Instagram where it was just hashtag blessed. And you would, it was kind of like a go-to term for those that wanted to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble or fish for a compliment while trying to appear unassuming or acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, right? They just post a picture of them on the beach or some accomplishment, just put hashtag blessed, right? It was the social media humble brag that ended up invading pop culture. Uh, Bruno Mars, maybe you heard of him, had a big single probably over a year ago now because time flies. It was called 24 Karat Magic, and he talked about all the different things you could ever think of that our culture uses to pursue happiness, right? From the opposite sex 
talks about uh, pinky rings, talks about wealth, talks about Cuban links, designer minks. What is it? Inglewood's finest shoes. Say what, right? Just go through the lyrics. But eventually it says, we too fresh, got to blame it on Jesus, hashtag blessed. Right. In pop culture. Blessed has jumped the shark. <laughs> it's kind of gone the way of the word love, where like we, we love everything. I love pizza. I love dogs. I love your new carpet. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But love in scripture is so much deeper. And in the same way, there's nothing wrong with me saying I feel blessed when I open my Chick-fil-A app and there's like a free sandwich waiting for me. It's a reward. There's nothing wrong with you saying, oh, I feel blessed, right? There's nothing wrong with good things happening in your life and you recognizing them as blessings. But consider this. If we were to go around the room, make a top 10 list of, of things that make you feel blessed, we just paused and considered, what are the things that make me feel blessed? Like for me this week, uh, it doesn't happen every time, but every time it does, my heart melts. When I come in the door after work at like 5 o'clock, whatever, and Raj hears me, comes tearing around the corner to hug me, right? That makes me feel blessed. Right? There's all these different things in life that make us feel blessed. But again, if we made a list, in our top 10 probably wouldn't be poverty. Right? In our top 10 probably wouldn't be mourning. Probably not going to put persecution in that list, your top 10, things that make you feel blessed. Matter of fact, we did a top 100. I, we'd still probably not see those in there. Right? Poverty, persecution, uh, all these different things we see in the Beatitudes. If you did, people might be like, you need to see help. You're a masochist, right? But there are, there was a British psychiatrist in a speech prepared for the Royal Society of Medicine that spoke of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teachings in this way. He said, the spirit of self-sacrifice, which permeates Christianity, as is so highly prized in the Christian life, is masochism moderately indulged. A much stronger expression of it is to be found in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. This blesses the poor, the meek, the persecuted. It exhorts us not to resist evil, but to offer the second cheek to the smiter. And to do good to them that hate you and forgive men their trespasses. All this breathes masochism. That's what this man had to say. A smart man. So the question is, all right, what is it? Is it masochism? Or is it maybe a paradox? One long paradox. You know, a paradox is a statement that seems contradictory, but it's packed with wisdom. Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels are full of paradoxes. Want to be great? Be last. Want to be first? Be last. Want to be great? Be the servant of all. Right? Want to be rich? Be poor. Again, it's this flipping of the ladder. It's this upside-down kingdom where everything is a seeming paradox, but there's such deep wisdom, real wisdom, that speaks to our reality. Lucky are the unlucky, is what the Beatitudes seem to say. Not survival of the fittest, but victory for the victims. These are countercultural. They're counterintuitive, but they're wisdom. They ask us to rethink, and they ask us to reconsider. And honestly, you look at the word repent that Jesus uses in Matthew 4 when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In the Greek, that word speaks to rethinking everything you've known to be true. So Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, all right, here's my kingdom, and it's gonna, you're going to need to rethink some things, reconsider these things that are counterintuitive. And one of those things we'll see as we begin to work through the Sermon on the Mount again and again is he wants us to rethink our interpretation of the Ten Commandments. He says again and again, you've heard it said, but I, I tell you, or you've heard it said, but I say. And we looked at last week how the, the fact that it's called the Sermon on the Mount is significant 
Because the last time God spoke to a group at a mountain was Mount Sinai and the handing down of the Ten Commandments. But we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that the Beatitudes are new commandments to replace the old ones, right? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the commandments, nor are they some new standard meant to save us. The commandments weren't meant to save us. Otherwise, Jesus never would have had to come. But remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He withdraws from the crowd as the disciples come to him. So he's teaching them. This is like discipleship 101, how to be a disciple. And the temptation is to take the Beatitudes and apply them one here and one there. And there's nothing wrong with that. You might be at a funeral and somebody says, blessed are those who mourn. Or there's conflict in culture and, and people speak on blessed are the peacemakers. But each one of these Beatitudes is all part of one teaching and they're strokes to a larger painting. And the Beatitudes paint a picture of the character of the disciple. They paint a picture of both justification and sanctification, of how the life of a disciple and the character of the disciple takes root and how it bears fruit. It takes root and it bears fruit. And that's what I want to dig into tonight, the Beatitudes and the root and the fruit. And in this analogy of the tree, it's important to go back to what we said last week. That we don't approach the Sermon on the Mount to try to take some teachings and apply them to our lives and help that it, hope that it's some kind of self-help that helps us do better. We don't just come for the teachings, we come for Christ. The teachings aren't our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. The grace that he gives us is the only thing that not just covers us, but enables us to walk out the Sermon on the Mount. Because with this tree analogy, so often we'll come to sermons, whether it's this Sermon on the Mount or teachings on a weekend, and we'll try to take this bit or that bit and say, well, this will help me. So it's kind of like a Christmas tree. We put stuff on the exterior of the tree. We hang it there and here and there to make it look pretty, but that tree is dying. There's no roots. On the other side of the coin, Jesus wants us to bear fruit, and it starts with the roots. God wants to change us from the inside out. He wants us to take root so that we can bear fruit, and the Beatitudes show us how to do that as disciples. Again, the temptation is to teach them one by one or use one over here and one over there, and there's nothing wrong with that. But again, they paint this picture of what it means to have the character of a disciple. And again, we see things similar to the Ten Commandments. There's, there's similarities. You look at the Ten Commandments, it begins with commands that had to do with our vertical relationship with God. But then after the first four, it begins to speak to the, our horizontal relationship and how we treat others and love our neighbor and, and, and treat the people around us. And the Beatitudes are the same way. The Beatitudes begin in the first four, speaking to our vertical relationship with God. And again, our justification and right standing with him. And then we see the, that it begins to have this horizontal focus. All right, how, what's the fruit of that in the way we treat the people around us? We've said it a million times here. If your faith is solely inward focused, it's out of focus. Right? The result of our faith isn't supposed to be navel-gazing self-help. It's supposed to be looking out to the world and saying, all right, how do I love my neighbor the way Jesus commanded us to? the way God commanded us to. Again, this is the fruit once we take root. And the fruit ultimately is happiness and blessedness. We want the fruit. We want to know the path to happiness. So maybe those people, some of those hundreds and thousands, it was over a thousand students at Yale, maybe they were like, okay, Jesus had a, had a recipe. Let's go to the Beatitudes and study that. And I bet they, a lot of people quit within the first four words. Because the first four words are, blessed are the poor. You think, oh, all right. Eject, right? This is problematic. Not just for the culture, but if Jesus stopped there, it would be problematic for uh, anybody reading the Bible too. Because we're not called in the Bible to promote 
poverty, right? This isn't to patronize the poor. The, the Bible calls us to help the poor, seek justice for the oppressed and the poor. But what's important is that it means the poor in spirit. Many translations say it straight out, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Amplified Version adds this, blessed are the poor in spirit, those devoid of spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant. David says in Psalm 62, excuse me, 69, 29, he says, I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. This is one of some 30 times in the Psalms where poverty is seen as a positive spiritual uh, quality. Why? Because there's nothing to protect. There's no need to live covering up and concealing. You don't need to protect an idealized version of yourself, and that means vulnerability becomes possible. Receiving grace becomes possible, right? The poor in spirit have little to lose, therefore they're ready for almost anything. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous and their philosophy has a lot to teach the church in this regard because their first step to healing is to step out of a pride in spirit and to step into a poverty of spirit. To say, I'm not in control like I thought I was. You know, captain of my ship, master of my fate. But to actually say, no, I, I have a need. I'm broken. And to step into a poverty of spirit, that's where it all begins. That's why it's the first beatitude. And if we don't step into a poverty of spirit or we lack a poverty of spirit, it ends up falling like dominoes into so many other areas of life. So often in my life, if, if there's a lack of prayer, it's because I have a lack of poverty in spirit. I think I got, I got it. I'm good. I'll make it happen. If there's a lack of time in God's word, so often it's because of a, a pride of spirit. Or, or a lack of gathering, it's because I, I don't need to gather. I, I'm good, right? There's a lack of poverty of spirit that affects so many other disciplines in life. And the end result, again, is this pride in spirit where we become functional atheists, where we say we believe in God, but we live differently. You know, Jesus challenges those proud in spirit. It's in Luke chapter 8, verses 9 through 14 where Jesus tells a story to someone who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else, a.k.a. they were proud in spirit. He says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, we see one of these paradoxes, one of these seeming contradictions where there's so much wisdom. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, ultimately in life, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we've sinned, as it says in Romans 3.23. And there's two kinds of sinners, though. There's, the, there's the, the poor in spirit and the proud in spirit. There's the self-aware sinners, and there's the self-righteous sinners. And this passage says that it's the self-aware sinner, not the self-righteous one who returns home justified before God. Again, poverty of spirit, like so many other things in Jesus' teaching, it seems upside down, but wisdom is revealed. We see the same in the, the next beatitude where it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And again, this is quoted at many of a funeral, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But just as 
poor in spirit isn't about material wealth. This isn't just about death. This isn't specifically about death. It's about mourning sin. And this flows from a poverty of spirit because when you realize your sin before God, your proper response is what? Not self-justification, not trying to make excuses. It's mourning that sin, mourning your brokenness. You know, the phrase good grief, it's more than something Charlie Brown liked to say. There's actually good grief when you're grieving and mourning over your sin before a holy God. It's proper. Again, if you look at the Amplified Version, it spells it out. It says, blessed are those who mourn over their sins and repent. In Nehemiah 8, if you go to the Old Testament, right, Nehemiah is reestablishing uh, the city of God, and he has Ezra come out, who's this priest and scribe and, and scholar of God's word, and it says he reads the law to all the people, and he starts first thing in the morning and goes till like noon. Now, for us, that's a recipe for nodding off or falling asleep. All morning, all a.m., he's reading the Word of God. He's not just reading the Word of God, he's reading the laws of God. And it says in Nehemiah 8 that as he was wrapping up, it says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. It says, For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Don't be dejected and sad, Nehemiah said, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, they're mourning, they're weeping. Again, it's a proper response when you realize your sin before a holy God. But there was a blessing. Nehemiah comforts them, and he says, look, the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's, there's good news. What comforts us is the good news. What comforts us is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the burden of sin, the burden of the sin that we mourn is lifted at the cross. It's the gospel. It's what the good news is, that, that Jesus came to take our sins so that we could have his righteousness. It's this upside down, counterintuitive, go down before you go up, death before resurrection, roots before the fruit. I don't think any of us, if we did it again, went around the room, said, give me 10 reasons you go to church every week. Mourning probably is not going to be at the top of that list. I go to church to, to mourn, right? We go to church to experience the joy of the Lord. That's our strength. We go to church so that we can be comforted. But sometimes we forget the equation. We skip the first part. There is a first part. Before the good news comes the bad news. Again, it's this upside down, flipped on its head. But the bad news comes first. Before the good news and being comforted and the joy of the Lord being our strength. You know, I've never, if you have, congratulations. I've never gone home from one service on a Saturday. Come back the next Saturday and been like, I nailed that week. I was perfect. Didn't stumble once. Was perfect. Perfection. Like, frame that, hang it on the wall. I was employee of the week. No, I've never, ever had a perfect week. Every time I come to church, there's, there's some brokenness in my life to mourn. And, you know, it's beautiful because we get to take whatever we're mourning and lay it at the foot of the cross again and again because the grace of Jesus Christ is never exhausted. And it's not to be taken advantage of, but we should remember and recognize that, man, there's something in our life all the time that we should be mourning and laying before Jesus so that we can be comforted. Again, so often in our culture, we want the, the comfort and the happiness and the blessedness without the, the first step, to actually recognizing that, no, nah, what we so often say in our culture, that I'm, a, I'm a mostly good person that screws up every once in a while. That, that's not the first half of the gospel. That's not the first half of the good news. This, I'm basically a good person. 
I love what Tim Keller uh, says about the gospel. Tim Keller says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Right, that's, that's bad news. But however bad you think you are, you're probably worse. <laughs> but he follows that up. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the, that's the morning along with the, the comforting that comes. That through Jesus Christ, this weight of sin that we mourn, it's lifted again and again. And what flows from all of this, the good grief, is just healthy humility. Healthy humility. And the next beatitude speaks to this. It says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And you know, our culture usually files away meekness with what rhymes with it, weakness. And we think these are synonyms, right? Meekness and weakness. But meekness, according to his definition, is strength under control. It's controlled strength. Because you think about Jesus. Jesus was meek. Jesus certainly was not weak. There was no weak bone in Jesus' body. I love there's an old hip-hop bar that says, you think being meek is weak, try being meek for a week. You think being meek is weak, try being meek for a week. Because being meek is hard. What's easy is always fighting for my desires, always fighting for my right, always fighting for me, because that's how we're wired. Inherently, we fight for ourselves. What's hard is giving up your will for the will of God, giving up your will for the service of others. That's hard. You know, that's what Jesus did. It says in Philippians 2, this passage we go back to so often here, it says, in your relationships with one another, starting in verse 5, it says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, almighty, right, power personified, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness so that he could serve mankind. That's meekness. That's power under control, power for the service of of others. Again, Jesus was almighty, very nature, God. And this stands in opposition to selfish ambition that stiff arms anybody or anything that gets in our way. But you know, to be meek does not mean to forfeit ambition. Because if we were humble and we have zero ambition, it's just going to result in a lot of people that are lazy, that are full of sloth, that never try to accomplish anything great for the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't saying let go of ambition and pick up humility instead. He's saying add humility to your ambition, right? Jesus asks, you know, do you want to be great? And he expects our answer to be yes. And that's when he says, hey, if you want to be great, then be the servant of all. Selfish ambition is, is replaced with selfless ambition, where humility and ambition work together to serve others. But, you know, if you don't live for your own will but the will of God and you look to the needs of others, what happens? You begin to develop new appetites, new desires, but namely new appetites because the next beatitude is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What's the opposite of hungry? Full. Jesus is basically saying blessed are the empty. When we empty ourselves before God, when we recognize our poverty in spirit, we step into mourning, all these steps, we get a new appetite. Like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we become a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. And again, it's in these first four where the character of a disciple takes root, emptying ourselves before God, letting him fill us. And just as trees take root, and the roots don't stop growing, and every year as you go through summer, fall, 
winter, spring, and all over again, those roots keep growing throughout those seasons. And in the same way, the same way we see in the seasons, this death before life, this descent in fall and winter into the ascent of spring and summer, we're called as disciples taking root that want to see fruit in our lives to go through these first four Beatitudes again and again and again. It's how we receive grace, but it's also how we grow through grace. Again, a poverty of spirit that we don't let go of a mourning over our brokenness that we don't let go of, a, a hunger and thirst for righteousness that we don't let go of. But again, the first four of these Beatitudes speak to the, the character of the disciple taking root. The next four, where we see the character of the disciple bearing fruit. And again, we see that these next four are, are pointed outward, right? The concern is so often with others and what's going on around us. Because again, a faith that's solely inward focused is ultimately out of focus. And the, and the fifth is, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, let me tell you, the mistake would be to read this and think that I'll only receive mercy from God if I'm merciful. To think that I'll only get it if I give it. But again, God's grace and the blessedness of God comes first. It's not that we earn it, but it's that mercy should be the fruit of receiving mercy that's at the root of our faith. Right? When we receive mercy, mercy should flow from us. Jesus speaks to this in the parable of the unforgiving debtor. If you're taking notes, it's in Matthew chapter 18, where it challenges us to respond to the immense mercy and grace that we've received from God with mercy and grace for the people around us. A servant is forgiven of, of really what's the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars. Jesus is basically giving amount that this servant would have never been able to pay. That's the point he's trying to get across. And his master forgives this debt. And just a short time after this, this servant sees another servant that owed him the equivalent of like a thousand, couple thousand dollars. He wrings this guy's neck and has him thrown in prison for that debt. So the master comes back to him and what the master says to him is, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had mercy on you? And for this, he's punished. For his lack of mercy, we see he's treated with a lack of mercy. Again, we receive it first, but what cripples this flow of mercy is this feeling of unforgiveness. Like, I would never do that. Right? I would never. But when you've stepped through the first four Beatitudes into this poverty of spirit, mourning this fact that, yeah, we're all broken, you begin to have mercy and grace on other people because you've realized the mercy and grace that you've received. And this flows into the next Beatitude, which says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In Scripture, in that culture, and in that time, your heart represented the seat of your desires. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart because from it flow all the issues of life. Your heart is the seat of your desires. So if you ask yourself, am I living this out? Am I pure in heart? What are your desires? Do they flow from Christ or do they flow from your flesh, right? Do they flow from the spirit or do they flow from the world and the temptations of the world? Because God wants to, again, give us a new heart where new desires and new hungers and new thirsts take root and bear fruit. But the fruit that we see in the last two Beatitudes would have been a doozy for the disciples that were listening at the time. Because the second to last is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Pause. If you're a disciple, you're thinking, hey, we're going to topple the Romans, do what we got to do to get them out of here, get rid of their occupation, so we're controlling things, we're running things, your kingdom is established. But you said, blessed are the peacemakers, right, come again? <laughs> That's that time. That's that culture. But I think in our culture so often, where we get it wrong is we're interested in keeping the peace rather than making the peace. 
You know, in the church, if you begin to talk about racism, begin to talk about social justice or social strife, which you'll often hear is stick to Jesus, right? Stick to Jesus. Because some people are of the peacekeeping mold. There might be an elephant in the room that's toppling everything, but can't we just not talk about it and, and, and keep the peace? But there's a huge difference between peacekeepers and peacemakers. Peacekeeping and peacemaking. And God doesn't call us to be peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Proverbs 10.10 says, People who wink at wrong cause trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. See, while peacemakers attempt to tackle a problem, peacekeepers will, will wink at it and keep it moving so that we can keep the peace. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, True peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. This is the fruit of the disciple who's rooted. Not aggression, but fighting for peace. Trying to establish peace and justice. Seek mercy. Do justice. Those are the commands of God in the Old Testament. The Bible confirms this in 2 Corinthians 5. Again, we talked about it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about us becoming new creations. We take root in the character of God. And we immediately see that part of that fruit, by 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul's talking about this ministry of reconciliation. Right? Not just reconciling ourselves with God, but each of us reconciling man to man. It starts vertically, but it's called to also be reconciliation horizontally. But you know what happens when you <laughs> fight for reconciliation or, or you fight for truth? Often you get persecution, again, from both sides. That's why the last beatitude is blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake, for, those, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I love that he says, for those is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, repeating the first beatitude blessing and coming full circle. But again, for the disciples, this would have officially thrown them for a loop, right? Maybe for one, they'd forgive them, but they're like, wait, you said persecuted? Because again, some of these are probably, guys probably are looking for the power and prestige that's going to come from his political power and military might as the Messiah ushering in a new kingdom. And he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the persecuted. And so just in case they're confused, it's like, okay, just in case you think I stuttered, he doubles down. He has this add-on where he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, side note, I've got time. Uh, sometimes believers in the church act like, well, the world hates me, right? So I must be doing a good job, right? The world hates me, so I'm just being persecuted because I'm living for God. Uh, but, man, it's, sometimes you're just being a jerk and you need to repent, all right? The, it, it's pretty clear here that if you're just like, the world hates me and I must be doing good, but it's clear in this text that it needs to be false, one, and it needs to be because of Jesus, too. Sometimes you, you just see people like, yeah, people hate me it's because I'm doing a good job. It's like, no, you need to see a little more fruit of the Spirit in your life. But that's a rapid trail. Um, but Jesus, through these Beatitudes, He's setting expectations, right? He's shepherding his flock. He, as God the Father in the flesh, through the Son, he is uh, parenting his children. And one of the things we do with our children from a young age, if you're parenting a kid, is you try to set expectations. Now, let me tell you, when you have a kid that isn't verbal yet and doesn't communicate, it's kind of hard, right? But I can't wait till I can set expectations with Raj. Because parenting a child, especially an adopted one from an unstable background, it means you have to account for the, the fear and sometimes the inappropriate reactions they have when they face a new and challenging situation. Hello, preschool, right? Just started this week. You set them up to, 
succeed in these situations by providing a script, letting them know how to handle themselves. Again, this is not just with adopted kids. This is, I'm sure you guys have done this with your kids. You're about to go into like food line. Like I go into food line with Raj all the time. I'd love to be able to kneel next to him and be like, Raj, you're not getting candy. Like this kid, again, doesn't communicate, not even three yet, and he knows he can take the candy and he puts it up on the, the belt. Like I don't even, he's smart, he knows. And I would love to be able to kneel, as I'm sure some of you have with your kids, and say before going in, you're not getting candy. Or you're just getting one item. Like, you can pick one item. You can choose. Like, you give them some control. You can choose one or two items. But then you have them repeat. Are you getting candy? No. What's going to happen if you throw a tantrum? We'll go home. What's going to happen then? I'll be disciplined. You know, does it work all the time? We'll see, right? Maybe, right? I'll see what my batting average is. It doesn't work all the time, but what you're doing is you're setting expectations because, like I said, an ounce of preparation is worth the pound of headache that comes if you don't set expectations. And clearly, Jesus, through these Beatitudes, he's smashing, redirecting the expectations of his followers. He says, great is your reward. Where? In heaven. Not, I mean, we'll see blessings in this life, but the rewards he's speaking to so often— in heaven. So it's like he's saying to the disciples, will you necessarily get a reward on earth? No. But will it be worth it eternally? Absolutely. Yes. You know, unlike medieval kings who in that time would throw coins on parades and, and politicians these days who, who give so many promises as they're running for office, Jesus could give promises, real promises, not just for this life, but for the next. There's a future reality to these beatitudes. But, you know, delayed gratification, it's not the strength for my toddler. It's really not the strength for any of us in our culture, thinking, oh, well, the gratification will come later. How much harder when it's not even speaking to this life, but it's talking about the next. It's tough. But there's a future reality to the beatitudes. Jesus was keenly aware to how the kingdom of heaven works, how heaven itself works, because he came from there. But Jesus was also keenly aware of how life on earth works as human beings. After all, he created it, right? So he's not just aware of, of the kingdom of heaven and how it operates in heaven. He, he knows how it operates on earth. So there's also a present reality to the Beatitudes. Again, we ask this question all the time to come full circle. Why is happiness so elusive? If we're so obsessed with it, why can't we find it? And I would say in part it's because these paths are ones we don't want to walk. Again, if you ask our culture what makes you feel blessed, it's not being persecuted. It's not being poor in spirit, mourning our sins. But it's like Ecclesiastes. In our culture, again, we have so many uh, uh, abilities to pursue happiness this route and the other route. And it seems like the more we chase it, just like the author of Ecclesiastes, it seems like we're chasing after the wind. It seems so hard to accomplish. Somehow, though, you look at life, and you realize that, just like Jesus said, when we lose our lives, it's when we truly find them. This paradox that's full of wisdom. Somehow, seeds never really take root until they fall to the ground and die first. Again, the, there are these paradoxes. And if I could have the worship team come up, one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, he wrote about the Beatitudes in his awesome book. I recommend you read it, uh, The Jesus I Never Knew. And he says of the Beatitudes, he says they're they're paradoxical keys to abundant life. And the full quote is this. He says, in the Beatitudes, these strange sayings that at first glance seem absurd, 
Jesus offers a paradoxical key to abundant life. The kingdom of heaven, he says elsewhere, is like a treasure of such value that any shrewd investor would, in his joy, sell all he has in order to buy it. It represents value far more real and permanent than anything the world has to offer. For this treasure will pay dividends both here on earth and also in the life to come. Jesus places the emphasis, though, not on what we give up, but on what we receive. Is it not in our own self-interest to pursue such a treasure? Again, he calls these beatitudes paradoxical keys to abundant life. And ultimately, again, paradoxically, as we spoke to before, selfless ambition replaces our selfish ambition and our self-interest. And may we remember in Philippians 2 that we read from that Jesus doesn't hand us these beatitudes as some impossible standard, as some kind of mystic. No, Jesus walked out these beatitudes, experienced them firsthand, shows the equation for us. He walked through every one of these beatitudes coming to serve humanity. He blazed this trail of rising downward that we see in the Beatitudes. He humbled himself more than any of us ever will be able to because he went from the throne room of God to dying for us on a cross. Nobody who is human is ever going to be able to humble themselves that much. And yet the reward is he's given a name above every name. He's glorified, right? God gives him this place of glory. And again, we see this descent before the ascent. He gives us, blazes this path of rising downward. And it's like the Beatitudes give us the directions. Okay, this is how you walk it. But you might be saying, okay, so how do I apply these directions to my life right now? How do I apply this to this week, to tomorrow? Well, maybe you're in one of two boats as we get prepared to go into worship. Or maybe you're in both of these boats. The first being that your faith is, is inward focused. You come to church, you go to your Bible for self-help making sure that you're good with God, but never sharing it. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 talks about, hey, we're made new creations, right? The, 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 the work of God takes root in our lives. We become disciples, and just verses after that, almost immediately he flows into this ministry of reconciliation that's supposed to be fruit in all of our lives. The question is, is it present? Is it present? If it's not, then may we continue to grow and may our roots continue to go deep so that we can see that fruit. And maybe that's the second boat. Maybe that's where you're at, where you pray to prayer. You've committed your life to Christ, but you stop growing because you stop putting down roots. You become prideful in spirit, rarely going to God's word, rarely praying, going to church on a weekend or going to life. Because that's optional because we're doing pretty good, right? We've got a pride in spirit. Or maybe there's no longer any good grief over your sin. And ultimately, after all this, your hungers and thirsts and desires get hijacked. Maybe that's you. You just stop growing like we talked about in our summer series. You're just doing laps. You've lived a one-year faith over and over and over again because you stopped putting down roots. Again, these first four Beatitudes, this poverty of spirit, this mourning over our sin, this, this, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness is something we're called to return to again and again and again. That's how we put down roots so that we can see the fruit of the Beatitudes in our life. This is the blueprint for the character of a disciple. This is the path of rising downward that we're all called to walk on. And if we could stand, I just want to give ourselves an opportunity as we've got the next five minutes to come before the presence of God and to experience that good grief and that poverty of spirit all over again because it's in those that we have the promises of the Beatitudes, that ours is the kingdom of heaven. Then we'll be comforted. 
If you came in tonight feeling heavy because there's just a weight of, of guilt and shame, guess what? The weight of sin can be lifted again. And if you need prayer for any of that, I would love to pray for you. We've got leaders that would love to pray for you. But let's take this time in worship to step before our holy, almighty God, who through Jesus Christ was, was so meek and so humble that he came to die for us, serve all of us, even to death on a cross so that he could take our sin and we could have his righteousness. Let's praise him for it again. Let's worship him for it again. And I pray that this would take root in our life so that we can see the fruit of a faith that's not solely inward focused, but is also outward focused. God, do a work in us and do it right now in worship.